Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. Never will forget the first time I went to Philadelphia and walked in a Hardy's restaurant and ordered biscuits and gravy. In fact, not only did the lady look at me like, who are you and where are you from? She said, who are you and where are you from? Um, I guess it was obvious with how clearly we articulate the English language here in the South that she, uh, she knew I wasn't from Rounds here. In fact, I was from somewhere else. And proceeded to tell me that, uh, <clears throat> that only the Hardys in the South sold biscuits and gravy and the Hardys in, in the North really hadn't gotten it together yet. So she didn't use those words. Those are mine. <clears throat> but they still need to work on some of their cuisine in, in, in the Hardys in the North. But, um, and so, you know, here I was having my, my appetite whetted for biscuits and gravy and had to, had to do something else. I forget what it was. Maybe they had some kind of biscuits. I don't remember. But it, it's, it, it devastated me, as you can tell. I'm still living with it. <clears throat> so, um, but I, regardless of where you go, um, and, and, and we've traveled to Nicaragua, and, and um, we, or, or, or I try my best to articulate some of the Spanish words that I know in Spanish, and, and it still comes out rather with a rather East Tennessee bent, as you can tell, uh, probably sometimes. But um, it, wherever we go, we give away who we are. Um, it's, there, there's no denying, if it's, if it's somewhere outside of the South, there's no denying who we are and where we're from. Very much the same way, probably as you stand beside your kids, there's no denying oftentimes who belongs to who. Uh, in, in fact, if, if it's still Tammy's Facebook page uh, picture, unless she's changed it, her and Krista are on her Facebook page, and there's no denying who, who's, who Krista goes with. You, you, th- th- but there, there, is that, there is that kind of familial, connected identity that, that we have, not only with blood, but, but with who we are and where we're from. That's the very thing that I think John's trying to get across to us here in this passage in chapter 3 of, of 1 John. Let's look at this text together uh, here in these verse 10 verses and, and uh, see what we can pull out and glean together to chew on today. See with what great love, verse 1, chapter 3, the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All, this, all, this, we, all who have this hope in them purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. 
This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. Pretty frank, pretty direct words here from John. Um, I think he has at least four things, if not more, to say here about our identity. First of all, our identity is in whose we are. That's what he gets to in these first three verses, in whose we are. What a great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And there is exclamation point after the children of God and after this next phrase, and that is what we are. It's as if he's saying, you know, sometimes uh, a whisper is of greater effect than, than, than yelling loudly. And I can hear John saying, and that is what we are, the children of God. Uh, he's, he's, he's trying to emphatically get across, realize who you are. Realize where you're connected. Realize what your identity is because you're missing it. You're not seeing the connection. You're not making the connection. Hearing this phrase here that, that in verse 1, that we should be called the children of God. Notice that he doesn't say that we should call ourselves the children of God, but that we should be called the children of God. In essence, it is God who gives us this identity, not us. We don't decide, I belong to him. He's the one who decides, I graft you into my kingdom I offer salvation to you, and when you accept it and receive my son Jesus, you become a child of the king. You become a part of the kingdom. I declare you a child of God, not the other way around. It's not as if you're wishing that you belong to me. You belong to me in a relationship, and because you belong to me in a relationship, I claim you as my own. You're my identity. You belong to me. Um, in fact, turn to Romans chapter 8. There's a, there's a, a great, this is a great parallel scripture here with First John. Let's look at verses 14 to 17 together. Of Romans chapter 8, for those, verse 14, who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And in Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. What is he saying? He's saying, if you belong to me, you have everything that's mine. If you belong to me and you're, you're claimed by me, claimed by the Father, you have everything that the Son has. He, he uses this word in, in, in verse 1 of lavished on us. In essence, he, he's saying that, that, as the song says, my love for you is extravagant. It's an extravagant love. It goes beyond what your what you mind can fathom. It goes beyond anything you've ever, any kind of love you've ever experienced before. It is boundless. It is ceaseless. It is endless. There is no, there is no way to, to, to capsulate my love for you. Because of that, you, you, you belong to me, and that's, that's the connection, this love connection that I make with you as my child. Now, as, just as we, we read there in Romans that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, this idea that... that what he has is ours. We get a clear, in fact, if you want a clear picture of that, go to Revelation 21, 20 and 21 uh, sometime this week and look at those passages to see here's the very things that he's saying are mine. These are the things that, that have been promised to the Son. These are the things as well that, that I share in. And so this new heaven and new earth that are, that are promised that the, that, the, that the Son will reign, all, reign over and reign on are mine. They belong to me as well. They are my possession as they are his possessions. Um, it's amazing how much, uh, how much energy we expend on things, the result of which are going to burn up. Um, how much energy we expend on relationships sometimes that, that are, are 
we keep trying to keep them alive and treat, keep trying to keep them alive and treat, keep trying to, whether they're relationships with folks at work or, or w- with someone out of town or someone in another country. And we try and keep these relationships alive and keep them, keep them, keep life sustained in them. And, and sometimes they just don't happen. They don't go anywhere. Same thing with, with the amount of energy and effort we expend on, on, on acquisition, on homes, on cars, on clothes, on uh, things that the results of which are going to burn up. They're, they're, in, in fact, it's all going to burn up one of these days. And, we, we spend our lives um, acquiring and protecting. I read somewhere the other day that the average, this is, please don't hear what I'm saying, to, to go cancel all your insurance policies. But the average person is insured for over half a million dollars in, in our country. And, and, and insurance is a, it's a, it's a necessary evil. I mean, I, I know we all need insurance. I get that. Um, but it's amazing how much energy we expend acquiring and protecting the things that are going to burn up. Um, He's saying here, he gives us perspective in these first three verses, because you belong to me, you have what I have. You have access to what I have access to. All of that is yours. If all of that is yours, you have no need to worry about anything. You have no need to to claim anything else as your own because you already own it all. We belong to him. We're claimed by him. The Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. So our identity is in initially whose we are. Secondly, our identity is revealed in the direction we're walking. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. If we find ourselves or someone else walking in continual sin, there is an assumption we should make about that individual. They need Jesus. No matter whether they're in church, no matter whether whether they have a, a testimony that's, that's, that they prayed to receive Christ, he's saying in these verses with great authority, I might add, saying in these verses, if a person who knows me cannot continue in habitual sin, that's that's an authoritative way that he puts that here in verses four to six. In essence, to say, if you if you find yourself in continuous sin, or you see someone see someone who, who you believe or who, who professes to be another believer in continual sin, they need Jesus, pure and simple. And if you find yourself in continual sin, go back and revisit. Do you know me personally? Has there ever been a point at which you prayed to receive Christ and you have a personal relationship with me? He's saying that you can't know me and continue to walk in, in continual sin. Um, so do believers sin? <laughs> well, absolutely they sin. Probably this morning, likely for most of us, for most of us already. Do, do believers sin? Sure they sin. But we're not to remain in sin. We're not to stay in habitual sin. We're not to... We're not to find ourselves in a pattern of sin, in a pattern of disobedience. Um, and look at verse 6. The implication here in verse 6, no one who, I love this, this phrase, lives in him, keeps on sinning. There's this idea that with that phrase that the farther we go in our faith, the more mature we are as a believer, the longer we've known Christ, the less sin should, should be a, 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 as great a challenge to us as it is. What am I saying? I'm saying you've been a believer five years you're going to struggle, or you should struggle with sin and disobedience much, much harder to, to a much greater degree than someone who's been a Christian 50 years. A person who's been a believer 50 years ought to have mastered some things in their faith. He's saying here, a person who lives in him. In other words, if I'm in him and I've walked in him, my life has been in him, my life has been continually as a follower of his, I should struggle, the longer my journey goes, I should struggle less with disobedience. I should struggle less with sin. Is that a picture of us today? Some of us have known Christ, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. 
Are we, are we still struggling with the same sin habits and sin problems and disobedience and, 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 as I say, areas of struggle that we did 20 years ago, 30 years ago? He's saying if a person who lives in me, in other words, who abides in me, who walks with me, who's known me, who has mileage with me, a person who has enough mileage with me should not struggle continually with the same sin over and over. Now, do, are we ever sinless? No. But the further we go in our faith... And the further we go on this journey, the less of a challenge it should become, the less of a struggle it should become, he's saying here. So our identity has, has everything to do with, with revealing the direction we're walking. If we're walking in, in a direction that says, I know Jesus, but I'm, I'm living in a pagan way, guess what? continually, guess what? I probably don't know Jesus. I may feel like I've absorbed him at church. I may have gone on a, on a retreat or in some meeting or some conference and and, and, and I prayed, or, or, I, or I, I cried, or I was sincere, or I was emotional, but I, I never trusted Christ as my Savior, never submitted my life under the Lordship of Jesus, never, never made that personal commitment. Then my assumptions about him are wrong if I continue to live in habitual sin. So whether that applies to us or whether that applies to other believers, we know we should make some assumptions that someone in, in habitual sin likely don't know him. They need Jesus. They need a relationship. It's not to say that we're judges. We, we have no ability or no right to judge. But he's saying here, these are telltale verses. These are, these are great evidence of where someone's faith is. They can't continue to know, to know me and walk in habitual sin. Thirdly, our identity is defined by our spiritual DNA. Defined by our spiritual DNA. Look at verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does, not, who does what is righteous... Is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now watch this. Those <clears throat> who are born of God will not continue to sin because, here it is, God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. God's seed remains in them. They can't stay in habitual sin because they have been born of God. They have been reborn. They have experienced rebirth. And at rebirth, God's seed, God's DNA is in them. Um, he, he clearly, here in these verses, identifies the source of all sin, the source of all wrongdoing, the source of all evil, as the devil himself. So, what does that say? It says this, and I, I've shared this with you before, God doesn't do guilt. He's never done guilt. You can't find, I challenge you to find anywhere in Scripture where God guilts us to him. He doesn't do that. All guilt comes from the enemy. Thereby, all sin, and the source of all sin, is the enemy. Here's what I want to say declaratively. <clears throat> every wrong you've ever done in your life, everyone, every wrong you've ever done in your life has never originated with you. It's originated with our enemy, the devil, he's saying in these verses. He's the father of every lie, the master ruler of every sin, the one who originates all wrongdoing. Now, are we human and carnal, and is it easier for us to follow him sometimes in Christ? Sure it is. But all wrong, all sin, all disobedience originates with the originator. And the, he, he declares that to be the devil in these verses. So he's saying here, our ability to walk away from the enemy and, and live a lifestyle of sin has to do with God's seed in us. Not our strength, not our maturity, but God's seed in us. Now, is strength and maturity important? Sure it is. As I, said, as I said earlier, the farther we walk, the less we should struggle with the same habitual sin. But he said God's seed in you is what gives you the potential victory over sin, the potential victory over the temptation of the enemy. It's his seed in us, and we're, we, he says here, have been born of him. Um, this is not our, of our own strength. So how does this work? Well, 
Remember last week? Go, go back up to, to chapter 2, and verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as it, as it has taught you, remain in him. That's, the, that's how to make this work. This anointing, this Holy Spirit in us, giving us the victory, one time, one, one, one situation, one struggle, one decision at a time. That's how this works. He says, what does my DNA look like? Um, DNA, as you know, is the building block of all cell structure, the building block of all life. He said, what does spiritual DNA look like? It looks like the Holy Spirit in you. It looks like this anointing that you have received from him in you. How do I have the power over sin? I lean on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. How can I say no to the temptations of the enemy? I lean on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. How do I gain victory over, over, over things that I've, I've struggled with, that have been habitual problems in my life? I lean on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in me. It's that anointing. It's that spiritual DNA that he placed in me at salvation. When I prayed to receive Christ, we received the Holy Spirit. Scripture says in Acts 2, when we received the Holy Spirit, our, we, our, our spiritual DNA changed. It changed from the fleshly carnal DNA that wants to please us and, and in fact ultimately glorify the enemy to this DNA he, he placed in us in the presence of his Spirit that says, I can guide you into every situation to ring true and ring right. Righteousness here in these verses, every situation can be that way for you. But I've got to lean on the Spirit's power and presence in my life to make that work. I don't have the strength to do that on my own. None of us do. Doesn't matter your mileage. Doesn't matter how much scripture you know, how many songs you know, how many times you've been to church, how many Bible schools you've led. It matters about our leaning and presence on the leaning on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's how that works. That's what spiritual DNA looks like. First uh, Corinthians is another great verse that illustrates this. First Corinthians chapter six. Um, turn there and let's look at verses nineteen and twenty together. First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty says. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You have been purchased. I'm, I, it's, it's as if this, uh, many of you have, have seen the movie. I can't remember the name of the movie now. But it's about um, <clears throat> the writer of Amazing Grace, uh, Newton. What was his first name? Isaac Newton. You've seen that movie about his being a, 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 a slave trader, basically taking the ships back and forth from, from Africa to America laden with slaves. If you've seen that movie, you've seen the, the slave auction block where slaves are both white and black, by the way, are, are, are stood up on the platform and, and folks are standing around bidding on these slaves. And it's as if Je- these verses in First Corinthians that we just looked at, as if Jesus is saying to us, I own him, I own him, I own him, I own her, I own her, and I own you. And it's as if he's saying, you already belong to me. You already, I have purchased you, I bought you. you. You are my possession, in essence, he's saying in these verses. To say, when, when my spirit enters you, it, it, it possesses you. In fact, uh, you know, it's, it's not, no, no heads are spinning around and, and, and projectiles coming out of our mouth, but we are possessed. By him, he's saying that's what happens when I when I enter your heart and in your life, my spirit possesses you, and as you yield to the power and presence of that spirit, my DNA, my spiritual DNA that I planted in you, comes alive. That's how to gain victory over habitual sin. That's how to gain victory over things that we're struggling with over and over and over and over again. So, don't allow the enemy to define you. He doesn't do. He, that's not his charge. He wants to and attempts to every day. But you belong to you belong to Jesus. You belong to the Father. You guys have seen this movie, Taken, I'm sure, with Liam Neeson. There's, there's two, Taken 2, and I think there's an, a third Taken that's about to come out again. 
And I've never seen the, the second one. But I saw the first one. And that resonated with me. You know why? I have daughters. And if something like that happened to my daughter, I would find myself doing the same thing, probably without the same skill set <laughs> that he has. But I would find myself doing the same thing. I would go to whatever end I needed to go to reclaim what belonged to me. You took something that's mine. And I'm going to come back and get it. I don't care whether I lose my life doing it. I'm going to come after it and get it. That's the same sense of tenacity that you ought to see in these verses. You, your identity is with me. I have marked you. My spiritual DNA, DNA is in you. The Holy Spirit marks your soul for eternity when he comes in. In fact, we looked at last week, this passage in Romans, where we are sealed by the Spirit. Never to be, never to be severed, that relationship never to be severed ever again, regardless of any behavior, any decision, any failure. He sealed us when we belong to him. And so he says, you are my possession. I purchased you. You belong to me. That's who you are. We need to see our identity in him. That's far easier for, to, to allow us to, to gain victory over sin and get victory over, over defeat and victory over worry and victory over hate and victory over whatever it is we're struggling with. How do we gain victory over that? I've got to see the spiritual DNA in me. I've got to see, I've got to realize and remind myself whose I am, who I belong to, see the direction I'm walking. But I understand, I need to understand my spiritual DNA. I'm not the person I used to be. That's not me. I've been purchased. I've been bought. I belong to God. I belong to him, not the enemy. Fourthly, it's not only whose we are in the direction we're walking and, and are being defined by our spiritual DNA, but our identity should be an obvious contrast to our culture. It, also, it should be an obvious contrast to our culture. Look what he says in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. The contrast is to as to who's who the contrast here centers around right and wrong. It doesn't center around the level of goodness, the level of badness. We can get these scales out of our mind that it, the, the, the better I am, the, the more good I am, the more God will like me and the worse I am, the less he likes me. He doesn't look at scales. He looks at us through a bloodstained lens. that says, I bought you, I purchased you. All of you belongs to me. Now your level of obedience and disobedience is a reflection of this relationship. That's altogether true, but it's not based on the, the amount of good and bad you do. It's based on the fact that you belong to me and your, your, your mind. So he says the contrast here of how obvious we are to the world and how obvious we are, in fact, to other believers is, is around this idea of right and wrong. Do we find ourselves on the side of right? Do we find ourselves in a position of right, uncompromising, regardless of who's for us, who's against us, who's standing with us, who's not, how, how alone I feel or how isolated I feel or how collected I feel with, with the body? If I'm standing and find myself in a place of right, and I'm convicted by that, I'm convicted that the Holy Spirit says this is absolutely right. In fact, that's what those verses in the latter part of chapter 2 refer to. This anointing that teaches you about all things. He said this anointing will never lead you astray. In essence, the Holy Spirit will never lead you in a wrong way. As, as, as we looked at last week, there are some gray areas in the Scripture sometimes. Um, you, you'll never find the Scripture say, here's the job you should take and here's the job you shouldn't. Should, should you color your hair? Should you wear this kind of makeup? Should you buy the cl your clothes at this store? Should you buy this house? You'll never find those things specifically in detail mentioned in the Scripture. So how do we know what to do in those situations? We lean on the Holy Spirit to guide us, this anointing to guide us into what is right for us. And He knows us. He wired us. He lives in us. He's got, he, he's got His mark on us. So that's the direction we were, we were to head is under His guidance, we're to follow His leadership. So 
If we find ourselves in a position of right, I'm going to tell you this, in this culture you and I live in, if we find ourselves standing for what's right, we're going to find ourselves standing in, an opposite, in a polar opposite position of our culture. I talked last week about this, this whole uh, mantra of political correctness now that's defining everything. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to stand on the right side, you're going to stand with him, stand in line with this book, you're going to be against this culture more times than not, sadly. Um, and, 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 and it's not going to be seen as politically correct. You're going to be, you're going to be labeled and, 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 and mocked somewhat. So anyway, expect that. Know that up, know that up front that if you, if, you, if you take a stand for what's right, Sometimes you're going to be taking a stand alone, depending on your environment, depending on where you work and what, what, the, what the climate is there. Sometimes you're going to be standing alone. Um, but here's, here's what is true, and, and, I, and I've shared this with you before. Our behavior doesn't change until what we believe changes. Um, th- th- this is true in just about every area of life as, as it applies to education, as it applies to conviction, as it applies to, 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 ex- to experience, as it applies to a lot of things. The things we do don't change until the way we believe changes, until our priorities change, until our values change, because those things are going to be a reflection. The things we do are going to be a reflection of the things we believe. So what he's saying in these verses is to say, those who belong to me, those who are identified by me, are going to find themselves in the right place. They're going to find themselves pursuing rightness. Pursuing, that's what righteousness is, is rightness. We're going to find ourselves pursuing righteousness. Why? Because I am in you, and that's what you're designed to pursue. When I'm in you, is what is right. Um, now, as I say, that's going to be in direct conflict with our culture. In fact, John sixteen thirty three says, "If you live in this world, you're going to have trouble. Expect it. If you live in this world, you're going to have trouble. That's 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 a given. We should expect that. We're not our, our life committed to Him and standing for what's right is going to be standing in direct in direct opposite of, of where this culture stands. So, um, this idea of 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 what is right and what is wrong. How do we get there? As I said earlier, we've got to lean on the power of the Spirit. That's what he's saying here in these verses. Uh, look at verse 20 of chapter 2. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Why? Because the Spirit, this anointing, always connects Himself with the truth, with the Word. You know the truth. You have access to the Word. You have access to the Spirit in you. That's how you know where, where the place you stand, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. This, this idea of standing on conviction, I'm going to tell you, is getting rarer and rarer and rarer in our culture. Um, I find myself listening to conversations, well, with, with daughters that have grown up in my home and hear the things that come out of their mouth and think, whose kid are you? Where'd you get that? And, and that's, I'm not standing in judgment over my kids' uh, Relationship to Jesus, they love Jesus, but but they are not they are not convicted about the things I'm convicted. Now, they're convicted about other things, good things, biblical things, but they don't share the same sense of conviction and passion that I have in every area. Do your kids? That's not to say they're evil or they're wrong, but I'm just saying, generation after generation after generation, the conviction level gets grayer and grayer and grayer and grayer, and there's less black and there's less white. There's less right and there's less wrong. Now, where, where, that, where that matters is in things that matter for eternity. What's right and wrong about how you dress or about where you work or about what you drive or about where you live is fine. I, don't, I, could, I could care less about what you think is right. Well, not that I could care less, but that's not far, nearly far as important or as, as, as important as who you know and who you don't, what you're basing your eternity on and what you're not. 
That's of utmost importance. And, and the fact that that should matter for our culture and the fact that that should reveal, he's saying here in verse 10, there should be a stark contrast to you're knowing me and living here and you're not knowing me and living here. should be a stark contrast in those two places, in those two positions. Does that contrast exist in you and I? Is it obvious what our DNA is? Is it obvious how we're wired and what our schematic internally looks like? Because it's reflected in the things we say. It's reflected in the stances we take. It's reflected in the things we listen to or or don't tolerate or don't allow in or don't. That's a reflection. Uh, This contrast is a reflection on us. And so uh, what is being seen out of your life? What's being reflected out of your life? Question here as we wrap up today, and it's, uh, I think, probably rather probing. It's true in each of us, but I I want you to, to, to hear it in the heart intended, and that's this. How long will we allow the enemy to define us for who we are and what our future holds? How long will we allow the enemy to define for us who we are and what our future holds? Because I'm going to tell you what he says to you every day is the same thing he says to me every day. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You you think you're more righteous than this other guy that you're you're working next to? You think you're smarter? Just because you know God and you go to church and you believe the Bible, who do you think you are? You know what he does? He tries to humble you and I and put you in our place, reminding us of our own sin, reminding us of our own failure, reminding us of who we're not every day of the week. Every day of the week. That's what he does for you. That's what he does for me. Who do you think you are? You have no right to to look at them and think of them in that way. You have no right to, who do you think you are? You know who you should think you are? You're a child of the king. You belong to the king. You're his. That's who you are. Now, that doesn't puff our chest out and give us some reason to brag or boast. No, it doesn't because we have failures too. <laughs> and we have sin in our life too. We have disobedience too. But we don't remain there. It's not habitual. We don't stay there. And he's saying, because you know me, there should be a distinction. There should be a clear line of, of your knowing me and walking with me than, than, than it looks like in our culture. Um, Satan gets this. He understands this. He understands that the battles for you and I are won or lost in the mind. They're not won or lost in the things we say or do. They're won or lost in the ways we think before we ever say or do anything. If he can control the way we think, he controls the things we say, the things we do. If we have trouble with anger, guess what? It starts in the mind. If we have trouble with, with, with ego, guess what? It starts in the mind. If he controls our mind, he controls our behavior. He gets this. He understands it. So the battle for those victories and, or, or, or failures are won or lost in the mind. Understand the way he works how he attacks, how he works it. We should get that too. Um, so if that's true, and if walking away from bondage to sin, if walking away from, from, from continual defeat is a battle that's waged and either won or lost in the mind, how do I win? Well, identity is the first step. Your identity is the first step to a life of victory instead of defeat. Understanding who you are, understanding whose you are, who you belong to, who's claimed you as his own. Your identity is the first step in living in victory as opposed to defeat. Because I'm going to tell you, when you get to that place and you start believing the lie from the enemy every day, you know what you need to remind him of? I don't belong to you. I'm not yours. I'm not listening to you. I don't belong to you. You have no influence over me. Spit in his eye. I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly how we have to approach him every day to say, no, 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 not here. Take that garbage someplace else. I'm not listening to it. I belong to the king today. I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. I'm not even perfect and sinless today. <laughs> But I belong to the king, and I'm not listening to that. I'm not, I, you're not dissuading me with, 
with reminding me of my failures, reminding me of what I'm not, reminding of who I need to be as opposed to who I am. I'm not listening to that. I belong to the king. He says I'm a child of the king. And because I belong to him, I have his DNA coursing through my veins in the form of the Holy Spirit to say, this is who you are. This is why you can win today. This is why you can, can, can be a person of influence today. This is why the battles that you face today, whether spiritual, whether carnal, whether financial, whether relational, whether marital, are winnable. Why? Because I am in you, and I live in you to win those battles for you every day. That's why I'm here. Um, if I know whose I am, and, and consequently the things I have at my disposal, and this is huge for believers, get this. If I know whose I am, and because whose I am, the things I have at my disposal, what do I have at my disposal? I've got his spirit at my disposal. I've got his word at my disposal. And I've got his people at my disposal. When I realize those things, I can win every battle the enemy throws my way. Why? Because I know who I am. I know I belong to him. I have his spirit at my disposal. His his spiritual DNA is in me. I have his word at my disposal. If I spout the word back to the enemy, guess what? He's going to run every time. He can't win against God's word. He knows it. It's it's a, a defeatist attitude he takes when he's faced with the word. And when I, when I glean together the strength of those things combined with God's people and the strength and encouragement I get that I need to walk against him and walk and stand, take a stand for right, take a stand for truth in our culture, I can't do that alone. I just can't. Most of us by ourselves, even with God's word and his spirit, most of us by ourselves are toast. You know why? Because we face friction every day. We face it every day. It's from the enemy. It's from a, a coworker. It's from a, maybe a family member, from a friend. And eventually... Eventually, over time, that beats us down. And we get beat down with that friction. We get beat down with that conflict. And we say, why even bother? Why take a stand? Just let him have his way. Why even take a stand anymore? You know why we, why we need each other? Because we need strength from each other. We need encouragement from each other. We need the body to work together with each other. That's why he says this, the assembly of yourselves together is not something that's, that you should forsake. It's something you should pursue. It's something you should desire. something you should come about. That, that's why, that's why Acts, Acts chapter 2 is so clear in the fact that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. They together, as a body, did those things together. That's what, that's what small groups are about, what community groups are all about. That's what the body of, the, of Christ is all about. We need, we need each other. We don't function well on our own. We're, as, if we are islands unto ourselves, he's going to eventually eat us up. Now, he may not today. But over a thousand todays, we're toast. We can't stand on our own apart from him and apart from the, 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 the strength that we draw together from the body. So today, um, you know better than anybody else whether you're allowing the enemy to define for you who you are, whose you are, what you look like, what this culture thinks of you. Why don't you just keep your mouth shut? You've got enough failures. Don't, don't bring another one on yourself. Just keep your mouth shut and, and walk this, you know. That's exactly how the enemy works. He doesn't want you to renounce your salvation. That's not what he's about. He doesn't want you to, to, to forget the fact that you belong to God. He just wants you to forget it publicly. He just wants you to forget it when you're around somebody else that can be impacted by it. That's when he wants you to forget it. Do all you want at home. He don't care. When you get out in public, that's when he's going to start to grab you and say, who do you think you are? Asking them about their faith. Assuming that because they're in continual sin, they don't know me. And you want to know about the relationship to Christ? Who do you think you are? You just you remember those thoughts you had just this morning or yesterday or last night? Who do you think you are talking to, talk, talking to him about his condition with me? And that was, that's the way he works. If we, if we know the way he works, if we understand that it starts and ends in the mind. Those, those battles are won or lost in the mind. Guess what? I need God to control my mind. How do I do that? I realize the arsenal I have. I have his spirit, I have his word, and I have his people. That's how I arm myself to win those battles over and over and over again. That defines for me who I am. 
It defines for our culture whose I am, who I belong to. Boy, they need that. The folks you work with need to see that. Some lost family members you have need to see that. Some folks that are you know, your neighbors in your, in your neighborhood, they need to see that. Some folks maybe that you went to school with and you, you see periodically or go out to them, they need to see that. They need to see a clear distinction in you. They need to see something that's different than the rest of our culture, the way the rest of our culture walks. Are they seeing it? Are they seeing it? Do we recognize the arsenal we have and the DNA that he's placed in us to say, you're mine. You belong to me. I purchased you. I bought you. Now walk like it. Look like it. Act like it. Think like it. Have, have, a, have an influence in our culture for what's right. That's hard to do, that's a, but that's what we're called to. But we can do that together. We can't do that alone. We can't do that by ourselves. We can do that together if we will. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Cross Point Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.